So we are going to do one last in our series of prophecy updates for the time being. But let's open up to Leviticus 25, Levitic, Leviticus chapter 25. We're also coming to the very end of our study in Leviticus, but the two overlap so well that we're staying with this concept of prophecy updates and what the prophetic word has to say to us. So Leviticus 25, verse 1, the Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath, a Shabbat to the Lord. Six years you shall sow in your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Shabbat to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvest after growth you shall not reap. And your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. Skip down to verse 8. You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn. Abroad on the tenth of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. Thus you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. Remarkable. You shall have the fiftieth year as a jubilee. Father, bless now the teaching of your word. And bring these truths to light, Lord. And we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, as I said, this is the last in our series of prophecy updates for a while or for now. Some have already said, Rick, you can't stop at six. You have to do seven. Well, first of all, understand something. I'm going to answer that. Six is the number of man in the Bible. Six is the number of the incomplete, not quite there, not quite to seven. That's the issue of the whole 666, by the way, with Antichrist, is he's 666. He never gets to the complete man, never gets to seven. And so six is the number of man, so I think that's totally appropriate because we are not yet complete. We are not yet there. That's why we still need Bible prophecy. If we were at seven, we would no longer need it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9 says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. In other words, prophecy buffs are going to have to find something else to geek out on in heaven. I don't think that's going to be difficult. Because Paul goes on and says in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known, where knowledge gives way to full relationship, where the things we know are replaced or satisfied, if you will, by the one we know and who knows us. And that's the whole point of prophecy. Revelation 19.10, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, right? Amen? And there's also plenty of sevens in our study today. So let's move on beyond that question. We'll stop here at prophecy update number six. But before we get into our study, listen one more time 
to the, the verse that we've been using as kind of our measure for this series through prophecy updates. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, I remind you, Jesus said, I am the bright morning star. So the prophetic word is our lantern, our lamp, as we've talked about, that we hold out and it shines in a dark place until Jesus calls, until we're with him, and until we have full and complete understanding. And Jesus is coming. You can't say that enough. Jesus is coming. But until he does, be it today or tomorrow or the next day or the next, part of why we remain is to hold out the bright lantern of the truth of God's word. To hold up the truth of the prophetic word in this world because this world is a dark place. I have some different examples for that, but I'm going to set those aside for a minute and, and share something with you. When we first started the Prophecy Update series, I talked a little bit about the rapture of the church. I think it was in the second update that we had. And I made a comment about the whole idea of a pre-tribulation -ra pre rapture that the church is called out before the tribulation begins, I made a comment about, and it's a euphemism, to say that why would the groom beat up the bride right before the wedding? I want to clarify something in case anybody heard me say that the groom doesn't want a beat-up bride. Because the reality is the bride has taken a beating over 2,000 years in martyrdom, in persecution, in hardship. And it's entirely likely that in this world we will have more bumps and bruises and persecutions and tribulations, little t. But there is a vast difference between the tribulations brought on by the devil and by the unbelieving world and the wrath of God. That's a different thing. The wrath of God is not for the church, and that's what I meant to imply and want you to understand, that we are not destined for wrath but for salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's why I am absolutely convinced we will not go into the tribulation because that's the time that God's wrath is poured out on the world, beginning in Revelation chapter 6, with the wrath of the Lamb, as it is called, all the way through the wrath of God in the great tribulation to follow. That is not for the church. That is not for the bride. The groom will not beat up the bride. The world will. And so for all of the martyrs and all of the persecuted who have gone before us, we have deepest respect and reverence and awe and appreciation for the fathers of the church who stood fast through all manner of persecutions recognizing that they were holding out the lantern in a dark place. This is a dark place. The Oregon Education Department now wants teachers, this is significant, it might not seem like a big thing, but listen to this. They want teachers to enroll in a course that is all about dismantling racism in math. Have you heard about this? This is now a course in Oregon. Because, and here's why, to say that there is only one right answer in math is white supremacy. Now, see, we're getting into the insane now. 
Darkness gets darker and darker. And where it's darker, there is no comprehension. There is no understanding. It's crazy. How did we get here? Because moral relativism has now become mathematical relativism. See how ridiculous it is when you start to say there are no absolutes, then you even go to things like one plus one, I have an apple and another apple and I put them together and it may be two, but it could be something else if I want it to be, whatever my truth is. It's absolute insanity, it's a dark place. Isaiah chapter five, verse 20 says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. This is a dark place, it just is. Why would we set down the lantern? Why would we leave aside the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path of the word of God? And part of the reason that our country is in the mess that it's in and the church is not brighter than it is today is the church has set aside the lantern. Ah, we can make it down this path. It's not too dark. Oh, it is. By the way, add these up. The political theater we've been watching for the last couple of months and cancel culture, which has become quite apparent, and add those two with a watered-down anti-Semitic false narrative in mainline churches today, and the sum is striking. What comes out of all that? I encourage you to watch this, but Eric Metaxas, I mentioned this on Wednesday night, he warns about the similarities between America and 1930s pre-Nazi Germany. How similar we are to then. In fact, I would even go so far as to say 1930s Germany was even more overtly Christian than America is purporting to be now. And yet, you know where that went. God's word is a lamp shining in a dark place. The Eric Metaxas uh, teaching or lecture that I, I encourage you to watch was at Calvary Chino Hills last week, and you can go on YouTube and watch it, and it's really, he, he's very engaging. It's fun to watch and listen to, but he makes some incredibly Valid and important points. Eric Metaxas is the author, author of the book Bonhoeffer, which, by the way, if you haven't read that, pick it up and read it. It's amazing. About Dietrich Bonhoeffer in those days, a pre-Nazi Germany who loved his country but started to see it go south and loved the Lord more. Anyway, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 13 tells us, all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, church family. This is our time to shine. But not a light that we can generate. It is our time to shine, to reflect the lamp of the word of God, the light of the truth of God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now is our time to be as bright as possible. And not with our wisdom and not with our ability, but with the word of God that is the truth in a very dark world. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 15, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. This is a dark place. And this is a lamp that shines. But you may wonder at times, as I have, where is the strength? to shine in such dark days. You ever just get weary of the wickedness? Find yourself fatigued 
by the fight, drained by the darkness. You ever just go, Lord, I, I just, I don't want to do it. Listen, Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And on that illuminating Shabbat, in the synagogue at Nazareth, as Jesus subtly and immediately launched his public ministry, he was handed the scroll of, of Isaiah. Bible tells us that he opened the book and he found the place where it was written, Luke chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus quotes directly from Isaiah 61, verses 1, and the first half of verse 2. That's where we're going this morning. Rest and release. Rest and release. I'm going to actually talk about the three R's, the three R's. Rest, release, and a third R upon which the first two R's depends. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Rest and release and something else all in Christ supplying us with the power and the radiance to shine in a dark place. This is how you do it. This is how we remain strong and we continue to walk in the name of the Lord. Rest and release and something else. What is the favorable year of the Lord? Have you ever wondered that? Jesus came to proclaim it, the favorable year of the Lord. Luke chapter 4, verse 20, continuing on, says he closed the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant in that synagogue in Nazareth that day, and he sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Why did he choose Isaiah 61, verses 1 and a half of 2? And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. I imagine at first you could have heard a pin drop until someone in the back said, isn't that Joseph and Mary's son? <laughs> we hear that and, and, and we put it together. We figure, okay, so the favorable year of the Lord, well, well that began with the first coming of Christ. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing, which is true, absolutely right. This age of God's grace that was ushered in by Jesus. Now we call it the church age, the last 2,000 years. As dark as it may seem in the world, it is yet the age of grace because the Holy Spirit is still in the world. So the lamp of the word of God is ignited, is, is lit by the spirit of God in the world, functioning, moving about, seeking the hearts of anyone who would follow him. That brightness, even in all of this darkness, this is the favorable year of the Lord. The last 2,000, God pouring out favor. Driving here this morning, I even thought, Lord, why do you keep putting up with us? How, how in the world, how in eternity could you be so patient with me? Because it's the favorable year of the Lord. This is the time from Jesus till now, where God said, I am going to set aside wrath. I'm going to hold it back. I'm going to wait, and I'm going to give every last man, woman, and child on the planet the opportunity to be saved, to know my favor, my grace, 
This is the year of his favor. But think about this with me. It was Isaiah the Hebrew prophet who first spoke that from God. Jesus quotes it in the Jewish synagogue. What did the Jewish people hear? If you were Hebrew and sitting there that day and heard Jesus say, the favorable year of the Lord, your mind immediately would not have gone to, oh, it's the beginning of the church age. <laughs> you would have heard something else. The favorable year is the seventh year. Oh, the favorable year. Yeah, we've read about that in Torah. Leviticus 23 showed us the Lord's appointed times, his Moadah. We went through each of those seven feasts on the calendar year of Israel. And starting with Shabbat itself. Not one of the seven, but Shabbat, which happens every week. And then God says, keep my Shabbat, keep my Sabbath. And then he goes through the seven feasts of the calendar year. And they're all prophetic, as we talked about. The first four fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, all in the spring. The last three that come every year in the fall will be absolutely fulfilled in Jesus' second coming. But notice this, Shabbat is on the seventh day, there are seven feasts, and the last three to be fulfilled all come in the seventh month. But it doesn't stop there. Leviticus 25 now commands a seventh year rest. And then a seven times seventh year rest for release. The rest and the released as Andrew Bonner says, the seventh day exhibits a type of millennial peace. The seventh year, yet more. And the seventh year of sevens is fuller than all the rest. It's, it's like the Lord is just driving the point home more and more and more that there is coming a complete rest. There is coming a complete release. And so as we come to Leviticus chapter 25, God commands both a seventh year rest and a seventh time, or seven times seventh year release. Rest and release. Times of complete rest and release. Years of sevens. Rest to be experienced in the sabbatical year, which happened every seventh year. And then release to be experienced in the year of Jubilee. I just love the name Jubilee. Doesn't that sound like fun? Someone says, hey, come over to the house. We're having a Jubilee you're not going to be bringing your dust cloth and ashes, right? Rest and release. Sabbatical year. You know that word, a sabbatical year in verse 5 is Shanat Shabbaton. Shanat Shabbaton, the sabbatical year, the year of rest. And it was a full year of rest, as I'll show you in just a moment. And then the other word is Jubilee. Note that in verse 10, you shall proclaim release through all the lands. It shall be a Jubilee for you. And the word jubilee in the Hebrew is yovel, yovel. I'll tell you what that means in just a minute. But as I've been hinting, there's a third word, a third Hebrew word of great meaning and significance that encompasses both the rest of Shabbat and the release of the yovel, of the jubilee. A third R, rest, release, wait for it, we'll come back to it. Now... <laughs> Now listen, the first seven verses, he talks about rest, the sabbatical year. Hear it again. The Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. They haven't left Mount Sinai yet. They've been there a while. 
And he says, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall give you a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field. Six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. Your harvest after growth you shall not reap. Your grapes of untrimmed vines shall not gather. The land shall have a Shanat Shabbaton, a sabbatical year. And all of you shall have the Sabbath of the land for food yourself, your male and female slaves, your hired man, your foreign resident, those who live as aliens with you, even your cattle and the animals that are in your land shall have all its crops to eat. So three times here, God says, the land shall have a Sabbath. Not the people, the land. Now the people are going to get a Sabbath because the land's having a Sabbath. So it works out very nicely, but the land shall have a Sabbath. You don't, have, you don't have to be a farmer to know that to give the land a season off is good for the land. And, and you'll see this in the Skagit Valley. One year you'll see, you'll see a massive crop of pumpkins in the fall, and the next year that's just dirt. Letting the land rest, because a rested land is a fruitful land. Hey, that works with us too. A rested people is a fruitful people. So the land shall have a rest. You give the land off, it produces better for the next. There's a problem here, though. For a rural agrarian people, if they didn't work the land, farming, sowing, pruning, reaping the harvest, how are they going to eat? How would they sustain themselves? And the Lord anticipated this question. Skip down to verse 20 of Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25, verse 20. But if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth the crop for three years. When you are sowing the eighth year, you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when its crop comes in. Talk about a bumper crop. This is three times the produce in year six. Trust me, God says, in year six, I'm going to massively increase your produce so that in year seven, it's still there. In year eight, it's still there. And then by year nine, you can eat what you planted in year eight and you're back on track. I'll take care of it. I will provide for you a, listen, a supernatural agricultural guarantee. Wouldn't work any other way. Every single seventh year, I'm going to make sure that in the sixth year, you have so much that it carries you through two years. More than enough. Don't worry. I got this. Now, that sounds fine from a Bible study perspective, but let's be human for a moment. So they just had to accept that somehow the land was going to miraculously produce three years worth of food in year six so that they could eat that year and the seventh Sabbath year and also in the eighth year while they waited for the crops of the eighth year to spring up again that they could eat in the ninth year. They're just supposed to believe this. Exactly. That's the point. One commentator said the year of rest proclaimed to the Israelites that the decisive factor is not daily work in the field or in the vineyard but Yahweh, the giver of the land. 
that the Sabbath year wasn't just about resting the land and resting the people, but it was about, <laughs> it was about building faith. That while the land would rest, faith would be exercised. Because there's no other thing for it. Rest requires trust. If you don't trust God, you won't find rest. And that's, that is such a basic principle in our faith right now. If you don't trust God, you will not find rest. You will strive, you will be concerned, you will fret, you will fear if you don't trust God. If you trust him, rest will come. Trust is absolutely key. Faith is absolutely key in rest. You want to rest? Got to trust the Lord. But, but what if the crops fail in year six? What if the fruit rots in the barn? What if God doesn't keep his word? And you know what? That's the real issue. That's the real problem with the human heart. We might not speak it aloud. We might not declare it for anyone to hear. But what if God doesn't? I know he said he would. I get it. I read it. What if he doesn't? What if God doesn't keep his word? See, that's the real issue. It's fear that undermines faith. It steals away faith. What if God doesn't keep his word? It's a very human question. I could say that about you. You could say that about me. Well, Rick said he would, but what if he doesn't? See, you know I am capable of not keeping my word, much as I would like to never be found false. I know the same of you, that we as human beings are capable of not always keeping our word to a T, of not always doing everything that we said we were going to do. I've told you before, Anna Marie figured this out in her first year home with us for the many times she said to us, but you said, that was like her favorite phrase. Now, kids, we're not going to go to McDonald's tonight. We've got other things going on. And I just, by the way, we don't go to McDonald's all the time. I just kind of use that as an example. Cheryl's afraid that you're going to think that we just live at McDonald's, a bunch of fat Crawfords. No. No. But we'd say we were going to a restaurant or something, and then circumstances would happen, as you adults know, and, and we had to change the plans. Maybe we'll go tomorrow, and, and Anna Marie would say, but you said, see, I didn't keep my word. And we know in human circumstances that there's a possibility that when we say we're going to do something, something could come up that would cause us to not be able to follow through. We might not keep our word. What if God doesn't keep our word? Listen, God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man, that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not make good? Behold, I've received a command to bless. When he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. Numbers 23, 19, and 20. And by the way, those words were spoken by that skeevy little prophet named Balaam, whose donkey was smarter than he was. We'll come to that story in short order, Lord willing. God is not a man. Now, some might say, yeah, but he became a man. Yes, he did, but he was God first. And even in becoming a man, he was still God. And when we anthropomorphize God, when we try to view God from a human perspective, and he says, I will do this, and we say, what if he doesn't? We are treating him like we would treat a human being. He is not a man that he should lie. In fact, God is incapable of not keeping his word. He can't not keep his word. He has to keep it. 
He has to follow through. If he says it, he has to do it because that's who he is. That's his very nature. And his nature remains true. And by the way, look back at verse 2 of chapter 25. Listen to what he said again. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Shabbat to the Lord. They're still at Sinai. And he says, when, not if, not given, not assuming you get there. He says, when you get there. What do you mean? Their arrival in the land was itself proof of his divine provision. The moment they set foot in the land, they could know with absolute assurance he's going to keep his word. He got us here. He did as he said. Therefore, if he says he's going to produce a bumper crop in year six, he's going to do it. We can rest in year seven. Do you have proof of his faithfulness in your life? Think about that. Look back over the years. And especially in those moments where you're saying, ah, I don't know if God's going to follow through on this one. Has he ever followed through for you before? We forget those things so quickly, so easily. And one of the number one things that people lose sleep over is financial worries and concern for our provision. Have you ever worried about that? Have you ever been concerned about... I don't know if we're going to make it this month or I'm not sure if I can pay all the bills or, boy, how are we going to get through? Boy, it's so expensive. I don't know. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And what? All these things shall be added to you. I got gotcha. you. Just take, you seek the kingdom. That's all I'm asking you to do. Seek the kingdom and righteousness. The righteousness of God. I got the rest. What if he doesn't? That's the problem. What if he... That's the issue. Let me give you a little practical trust builder. You can, you can put this at work, and, and you might want to jot this down. Psalm 92, verses 1 and 2. A little trust builder exercise that you can start to work out in your life. Psalm 92, verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Verse 2, to declare your loving kindness, your grace in the morning, and your faithfulness at night. Try that. Start waking every day, practicing declaring his grace in the morning and his faithfulness at night, and you will sleep better. And even your greatest financial woes and concerns and worries will begin to dissipate because you realize he's got it. He's got me. It doesn't always look like I think it's going to look, but he always, always follows through. He provides, he produces, he brings the fruit. He is the point, not the work of the land, not the sweat of my brow or the work of my hands. And by the way, he got them there. Do you think he's going to get us there? He said he would, right? He said he's going to get us there. Paul said in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your, your, your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is he going to come? He said he would. He guaranteed he's coming. 
And Paul, as if to drive the point home, says, faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. So in the sabbatical year, while the land got its resting, faith was put to the testing. The land rested and faith was tested. The land got its Shabbat, and the people would exercise faith in that year and in year six just to go, okay, he said he's going to take care of it. By the way, he gave them something else to help that whole process of faith. If you flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 31, a couple of books over to the right, Deuteronomy chapter 31. The turning of the pages of the Bible is like water to my soul. Deuteronomy 31, verse 10. Then Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years. So, okay, this is the end of the Shabbat, the Shanat Shabbat, the sabbatical year. At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the feast of booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, which, you know, would be Jerusalem, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people. The men and the women, the children send off to children's church, and the alien, oh, no, it doesn't say that. Assemble the people, the men, the women, the children, and the alien who is in your town so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. Moses says, time for a national Bible conference. Every seventh year, toward the end, so in the fall of that year of Sabbath, everyone was to come in and gather for, interestingly, the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, which was a harvest celebration, but there was no harvest, except that which came in the bumper crop of the sixth year. But they were to gather and celebrate the Feast of Booths, and there on that celebration at that day, they were to have Bible study. They were to assemble and literally have read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. From oldest to youngest would gather to hear the reading of Torah. And this would encourage and develop and strengthen their faith. In the seventh month of the seventh year, Sukkot became a massive Bible conference. Did it work? Nope. Why not? Because from the establishment of Jerusalem over Israel to its tragic fall, they never kept the seventh year sabbatical rest. Not once in 490 years, not a single time. Did they keep it before that? Possibly, perhaps, though we have no record of it. But we know from the establishment of Jerusalem forward that across a period of 490 years, they never once kept the sabbatical year. And so God gave the land rest and sent his people off to work out at Babylon Gym for 70 years. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. This is amazing to me. 
It's remarkable to think that God said, take every seventh year as a national year off. Just rest. No farming, no sowing, no reaping. Just chill. The food will be there. You'll have plenty in store. Relax, rest, Sabbath for the whole entire year. When I hear that, I think that sounds great. I am all in. They didn't take the year off. Apparently, it was just too good to be true. We can't. We just can't do that. Yeah, I know, because rest requires trust. And if you don't trust God, you will never find rest. And by the time of Isaiah the prophet, he spoke, and many of you are very familiar with these words, Isaiah 30, 15, thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. And Israel as a nation has yet to learn about this type of rest, this rest that builds faith. Hebrews chapter four, just listen to this. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard, and the Hebrew pastor is talking about his fellow Jewish people, the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest. That is, faith enters the rest. Trusting in God is where our peace will come. And down in verse 9 he says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And he's talking about Israel. And please make the distinction because there are plenty of Jewish people who have given their lives to Jesus and found the rest. The entire first century church began as a movement of Judaism. It was a Jewish group. But after a while, Israel as a nation would reject that. Which is why Israel to, as a nation today is largely secular. And still has not entered the rest. Still is working awfully hard and missing out. Brothers and sisters, practically, do you take God at his word? Do you believe God will keep his word? Because that's the issue. Every time we start to doubt, every time we start to fret or fear, the question is, do we believe God will do what he said he would do? If you're having financial woes, you look at Matthew 6, the whole chapter, just read it through. And think about Jesus saying, consider the lilies of the field. They don't soil or toil, nor do they reap. God takes care of them. He clothes them better than Solomon. Look at the birds of the air. They're just fed. God takes care of them. How much more are you? And I'm paraphrasing. But it's one of the defining passages, Jesus speaking, to help us find rest simply by trusting in the Lord. And James chapter 5, verse 7 tells us, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. And by the way, prophetically, the knowledge of the nearness of the coming of the Lord is the best thing for faith, for rest. I still hear people saying, in fact, I read an article um, Deb Seibel gave me uh, that, that Corey Ten Boom believed that the pre-tribulation rapture was heresy. 
Why did she think that? Because she went through such tribulation. She was afraid that that teaching would teach Christians not to be ready for hard times. And I've told you before, you've got to make a distinction between tribulations, little t, and the tribulation, which is the wrath of God. That is not for the church. This is. We will have hard times. We have had hard times. And we may yet have harder times before Jesus calls us out, which is why we're holding up the lantern. We know it's dark here. We know it's going to be hard here. But the coming of the Lord strengthens the heart. Faith that Jesus is going to do what he said he was going to do, like as if we were the Israelites in the wilderness and we're in that wandering 38 years, but we know the promised land is ahead because God said so. And every thought of the coming promised land, every thought that we would be there one day strengthens the heart. That's where we're at today. So I completely dismiss any notion that a view of a pre-tribulation rapture weakens faith. It strengthens it if you can conceive of it and understand it biblically. The coming of the Lord is near. By the way, the rabbis believe that the next sabbatical year begins, going to give you a date, begins on Tishri the 1st, 5782, through Elul the 29th. So that is the seventh year rest for the land, the sabbatical year. When is that? September the 7th, 2021. So this year, in September, begins the Sabbath rest. Does that mean something for us? I don't know. I'm just here to present the information and to let you think about it. But you know what? The Lord didn't stop with the Sabbath year rest. He also gave the people, secondly in your notes, if you're taking notes, rest. He gave them release, release. The Jubilee. Look at verse 8. You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourselves. Seven times seven years. So that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. Thus you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. Check this out. It shall be a jubilee, a yovel for you. And each of you shall return to his own property. And each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines. That's interesting because you have already just had a seventh year rest. So what would be the eighth year? which would be the first year of the next seven, you take that year off too. Every 50 years, you get two years. <laughs> I love this. And he continues. You shall eat, it shall be a, a jubilee for you. Verse 12, you shall eat its crops out of the field. Verse 13, on this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. Jubilee, yovel, literally it's a long, continuous blast of the ram's horn. Or the mature ram's horn. So it's the big one. It's the one Joshua was blowing in the Ten Commandments. If you remember way back then. It's the big ram's horn. The yovel. The ram's horn. You might be like, well, Rick, I thought that went by another name. It, it does. Which I'll address in a second. <laughs> Don't worry, I've got all this in my notes. So we'll come back to everything I said we would. 
the ram's horn. And the ram's horn would be blown. So the yovel, the jubilee, is literally the blowing of the horn. I love that. Every fall in Israel, you know what happened. On the first day of Tishri, the seventh month, the ram's horn was to be blown. That's Yom Teruah. But here, on the remarkably, on the 49th year, unusually on Yom Kippur, 10 days later on the Day of Atonement, they were to do it again. Blow that horn. Why? To begin the year of the Yovel, the year of the blowing of the horn, the year of Jubilee. It's beautiful because on that year, the horn was blown on the Day of Atonement. What a picture. With sins atoned for, Jubilee begins. With sins paid for, the rest Really, come, people are released. That's how it works. That's where release comes from. And it was to be a nationwide release. So get this, the, the Jubilee, the Yovel, was to be released from debt, released from prison, released from slavery, and even property rights were released to go back to the original family ownership which protected the inheritance of every Israelite in the land. God's release Every 50th year. And by the way, the Lord would not allow his people to use this to rip each other off. No unfair or upside down mortgages. No unscrupulous lending practices. No price gouging. If you make a sale, verse 14, moreover to your friend or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the Yovel, you shall buy from your friend. friend. He is to sell to you according to the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of years, you shall increase its price. In proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price. For it is a number of crops he is selling to you. And you shall not wrong one another. You shall fear your God. For I am the Lord your God. You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to carry them out that you may live securely on the land. Furthermore, in the Jubilee, the people could eat right out of the field. In fact, it was kind of like going back to the sojourning days. Just eat what's there, which means that both the property owner and anyone else in Israel, the poor, the impoverished, could eat of the field. Just walk around. You could take fruit from wherever, or you could take from any vine, or you could eat from any produce that was naturally being produced, supernaturally, I should say, by the Lord in the field. You just ate out of the field. Like this big, chilling you know, in the fields together, relaxing for the whole year. It's rest, but it's release. No sowing, no reaping, no harvesting, no labor. Just rest and release, rest and release. And by the way, this country was founded on that principle. The Jubilee. Did you know that? That it is actually engraved on a highly significant piece of American history? We call it the Liberty Bell. And on the side of the Liberty Bell, and you can even read it, see it today, it says, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Leviticus 25, verse 10, King James translation. You know, I would love to get a selfie with the Liberty Bell and tweet it off to Capitol Hill. <laughs> this is the deal. The jubilee, release, rest, freedom. Did Israel ever keep the Jubilee? Nope. Not once. They got into the land. 
and the years were lost. In fact, by Joshua chapter 6, verse 6, the word yovel for ram's horn was already replaced by shofar in the language. So that's the other word I told you, not the third word. That's not the third R because it starts with an S, right? So it was replaced by the shofar, and the word yovel would never be heard in the Bible again. I mentioned Wednesday night. You see it 20 times in Leviticus. You see it one time in Numbers, and you never see Yovel again. You never hear Jubilee mentioned again, although the favorable year of the Lord is. So the concept, the idea. It's remarkable. We have such a hard time accepting freedom and release, not only for ourselves, but for others, to allow others freedom which is why we're seeing it go away so much even in our country today because we got to control people. We got to control what they say. We got to control what we think. We got to tell them what they need to do. Who does? Those in power. God is about freedom and release. God who has all the power and all the authority and all the right to be exacting and demanding says, I have for you rest and release, freedom and liberty and yet so many people settle for detention and, uh, and choose captivity. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And Paul is implying the slavery of sin. Because when we give in to sin, it comes on us like shackles. It is not freeing. It is not release. He says, for you were called to freedom, Galatians 5, 13. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And Leviticus 25, 19 says, Then the land will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. Bonner says, There is a yearning in the heart of God towards this happy time. Sabbatical year. The, the Yovel. Because these two together are literal, practical previews of what life in the kingdom was to be like. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 12, you will go out with joy, you will be led forth with peace, the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And I cannot wait to see that. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. The kingdom is rest and release. The final fulfillment of that, the complete rest, as in the number seven. The complete release, as in the number seven again. The kingdom. Which, by the way, reflects the king. Because the rest and release of the kingdom of this favorable time reveals to us the heart of the king who said in John chapter 8, verse 31, if you continue in my word, you're truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you what? Free. So if the son makes you free, he said, you will be free indeed. Rest and release. And they depend on the third R. You're not going to have rest or release without the third R. And something very special was to take place on the last day of every Sabbath year. On a lull 
the 29th, Elul is the last month of the Hebrew calendar year, on the 29th of that month. And this is the third Hebrew word that I've hinted at, connected both to the rest of the sabbatical year and the release of the Jubilee, and you find it in Deuteronomy chapter 15. So turn over there, Deuteronomy chapter 15. Rest in Shabbat. Every seventh day, every seventh year. Release in the Jubilee of the Yovel. Every 50th year was a 50-year release. And Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission. There's your third R. This is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. From a foreigner you may exact it, <laughs> but your hand shall release whatever of yours is with your brother. However, there will be no poor among you since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. If only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all this commandment which I am commanding you today. Remission, the Lord's remission. If anyone owes you anything, it's done. Over, kaput. I think kaput is a good word. No longer any debt. It's released every seventh year. You don't even have to wait 50 years for it. You get the remission every seventh year. That's a really interesting Hebrew word. It's Shemitah. The Shemitah. Remission. Shemitah means remission. It means to let it fall. If I owe you something, you come to me and, and we have the Shemitah. You let it fall. I no longer owe you anything. Just let the debt drop. All debts fall. Everything you owed, nothing, it wasn't put on hold. It's not like the seventh year. Well, you can take a, you can take a little holiday from your debt. In the eighth year, it's back on in full, baby. No, no, it's gone. You let it fall. You are remitted in full. It's the Lord's remission. And it all points to something that Jesus did. It's where we get our rest and our release. It's how we get to both of those by the complete remission of every last debt of sin against God. He paid it all. And the price was paid. By the way, that's the thing about the debt being dropped. It's not that the debt just dissolves. It's not that they just write it off. No, it's paid in full by another. And that, this was a picture of that. Yeah, the debts were to fall here in Israel. But the remission of which they spoke was paid in full by Jesus. He, and by the way, on the cross, in the darkest hour of earth history, Jesus literally spoke the Shemitah. Did you know that? The Shemitah, Luke 23, 34. He says the word. He says, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. And the word forgive in the Greek is aphes. Aphes means let it go, let it fall. Shemitah means let it go, let it fall. It is the exact Greek equivalent of Shemitah. By the way, the next Shemitah would fall on a lull, the 29th, 5782. That's September 26th of 2022. And it makes me wonder. Might the final Shemitah of Israel 
be seven years after that? What do you mean? I mean, if the church is caught up pre-tribulation, and we know as the Bible teaches very clearly, there's a seven-year period of the wrath of God being poured out on a rebellious world. At the end of that seven years, there is a seventh-year rest. There is a Shemitah. There is a full remission of the sins of Israel as believing Israel sees him coming, believes in Jesus, cries out to Jesus. Romans eleven twenty six. so all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them, God says, when I take away their sins. That's Shemitah. That's the rest and the release by the remission. Now listen to me. Because we don't have to wait a year for this. Or seven. Or 50. To experience the Shemitah. Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is our Jubilee. And Jesus is the Shemitah. Rest, release, by complete remission. And you can experience it right now. Now, don't put your Bibles away yet. Because normally when I say you can experience it right now, you think, okay, oh, Rick's talking to the non-believer. He's given them an opportunity to, so we can start thinking about lunch. Oh, no. You can experience Shemitah right now. Christians. I've already experienced Shemitah. I'm, I'm, I've already had the remission of my sins. I gave my life to Jesus, right? I trusted him. And to make that publicly known, I got baptized. So I've had the Shemitah, thank you very much. You can experience the Shemitah right now. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. He said in Mark 11, verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. And Jesus told this little story. Matthew chapter 18, when Peter came and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents is approximately 15 years of labor. So your salary for 15 years is a big amount. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him and said, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and, listen, released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii, about a day's wage. And he seized him, began to choke him and, pay, and say, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, I'll repay you. But he was unwilling 
and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. And they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should pay back all that was owed to him. And Jesus says, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Is there anyone that you can think of, anyone that you know, who needs rest and release by the remission that only you can give them. Who do you need to forgive? The final Shemitah, as I said, will come to Israel at the end of the last seven years of the age, but you can receive it from Jesus and you can give it right now. Father, I pray that you would give us the faith to rest I pray that you will give us the ability to embrace the full release that has come to us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, because of these, I ask that you will give us the ability to forgive as you have forgiven us. That we would take this more seriously, Father, than perhaps we ever have. To pause in our lives, each one of us, and think about who are we holding in debt? Who have we not granted full remission? Who needs us to give the Shemitah to them? Father, help us be like you, a forgiving and loving people. In Jesus' name, amen.